Um, if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to uh, John chapter 4, uh, and we're specifically this morning looking at a story of uh, redemption. Uh, and redemption is not necessarily a word that we use in modern day vernacular. It's not like you walk around every day and hear people using redemption, redeem, redeemer. Uh, so I wanted to define very quickly what redemption actually means. Uh, redemption means to free someone from bondage. Okay, so redemption, to free someone who's enslaved or to free someone uh, from bondage. So in order for redemption to become a reality, there must be a redeemer. Uh, if we would experience redemption, freedom, that we would be released, uh, there needs to be someone, because we can't free ourselves, there needs to be someone outside of ourselves uh, who would free us or who would be the redeemer, who would redeem us. Um, so before I share this story um, of one who was redeemed, uh, I wanted to ask you the question to really be thinking about throughout this entire message uh, today, and I'm going to return to it at the very end. Is there anything in your life that you need, that you desire to be redeemed or set free from? If this is a story of redemption, a story of someone who is literally set free because she met the Redeemer, uh, therefore was redeemed, uh, is there anything as you sit here today and you examine, you know where you are, you know what's going on in your world, is there anything that you desire or just need to be redeemed or set free from? Another way to think about it, is there anything in your life you'd love to no longer be enslaved to? Maybe redeemed, rescued, set free from anger or bitterness or unforgiveness, redeemed, rescued, set free from guilt, shame, insecurity, free, worry, anxiety, redeemed or set free from a past that just seems to be crushing your current, your present, uh, maybe redeemed from uh, and set free from a past where someone did something to you, said something to you, uh, but yet what happened five years ago, 50 years ago, continues just to haunt you today, and it, it's holding you back from living the life that God has for you uh, to live. Or maybe it's just redeemed or rescued or set free from an addiction, and you can name your addiction, uh, whether it's stuff on the computer with pornography, uh, whether it's drink or drug or an addiction to materialism or an addiction to work, an addiction, there's so many different addictions. So as we start this message on encountering someone who was redeemed, as you think about it, if you have one of the bulletins, write it down. Jesus, this is what I need. This is what I desire to be set free from. Uh, and the beautiful thing is that no matter what you write down, there is nothing that is beyond redeeming. There's nothing that is beyond Jesus saying, oh my goodness, that one frightens me. I, I can't redeem that. That one's just too big for me to touch. So this morning, we're looking at uh, the story of a woman uh, who does not have a name. She, she has a name, we just don't know what her name is. Uh, but it's the story uh, of a woman who experienced something that she didn't set out to experience. She didn't start her day by saying, you know what, uh, I'm going to go look for the Redeemer and hopefully I'll meet a Redeemer and He will redeem me from my current situation, which I just think is maybe unique. Some of you just came to church this morning thinking, I'll go to church, we'll sing some songs, listen to a testimony, listen to a message, celebrate communion, and go home and go on my way. 
But maybe today is the day that God actually wants to encounter you uh, in a very redemptive way. Now, what I love about this story also is Jesus encounters another least likely person. Okay, the last two weeks, Jesus encountered a group of fishermen uh, and called them to follow him. Uh, last week, specifically, we looked at Jesus encountering someone who was a tax collector. And what I think is really funny about this, you've got the fishermen and the tax collector now following Jesus. The least likely people, if you're putting together an A-team, this is not it. Like if you wanted to have a team of winners, you don't invite tax collectors and fishermen. This is like the D-team at best. And what's really funny about their response is they're even shocked at who Jesus is now having a conversation with. In John chapter 4, verse 27, this is after the encounter. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? I love that they were thinking about, like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, it's one thing where this is coming from a tax collector and fisherman, nonetheless. They're looking at her and like, wow, you've really stooped really low this time. You're talking to a woman, Jesus. What are you, what are you thinking? Well, in this encounter, now you have to understand first century women were viewed a, a little bit differently, and I'll explain why. Uh, in this encounter, I'm specifically going to ask three questions and hopefully answer them as well. And here are the three questions. I encourage you to write them down. What does this woman need to be redeemed or set free from? Number two is, how did Jesus go about redeeming her? What did he do to provide a way of redemption for her? And number three, what impact did her redemption have on those around her? Okay? As we begin this encounter story, we see a Jesus, and he's pretty spent. He's pretty tired. He's pretty wiped out. And uh, the story begins like this. Now he had to go through Samaria, and so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon, or the sixth hour. Now, John, uh, who's narrating this story, says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, if you were to look at a map, Jesus geographically did not have to go through Samaria to get to where he was going, in Jerusalem. Okay? He did not have to walk through Samaria. Uh, and actually, any person who was a Jew would do anything they could to avoid walking through Samaria. Uh, because the Jews and Samaritans, they did not like one another. The Jews did not like the Samaritans because they saw the Samaritans as half-breeds. They were Jewish, but they began to intermingle and marry um, and have kids with those who were not Jewish. So, a person who was Jew, a purebred Jew, they would look at someone who's a Samaritan and they just, they, they couldn't stand being around them and they would do everything they could to avoid going through Samaria. It's kind of like when I lived in Ohio and I had to get somewhere on the other side of Ohio, I would do anything I could to avoid driving through Michigan, even if it meant going an extra couple hundred miles. I'm just kidding. But John says he had to go through Samaria. And what I love about this is Jesus had an encounter, an appointment with someone in Samaria, and that's why he had to go. John says he's tired. He's exhausted from traveling, from ministering, from teaching. And as he arrives at Jacob's well, 
he literally crashes down in, exha- in exhaustion, uh, and he, he's just completely spent. And this is when he encounters this nameless woman. So I wanted to set that up. This is Jesus, completely spent and tired, is now about to encounter this woman. Now, a quick question for you. When you're tired, when you're spent, when you're maybe even frustrated, and you have the opportunity to encounter someone, to encourage them, serve them, bless them, help them in some way, what is your response to that person when you're tired, when you're, when you're just exhausted, you're spent? Isn't part of our, if we're honest with ourselves, I just wish this person would go away. They've got so much baggage, I don't even know where to begin with this person. And I'm really thankful when I look at Jesus, who was completely spent, he didn't like fake sleep. He didn't like close his eyes and like put his head against the well and be like, maybe she won't notice that I'm here. Maybe she'll just like get the water and move on. I just love that Jesus, despite being physically spent, encounters this woman in a just transformational way. Now enter the woman at the well. Now we don't know her name, but as the story goes on, you're going to learn these few things about this woman. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. She's sinful. That's a detail we'll get to later. And she's most likely not a very well-liked person in her town. We've got a woman, a Samaritan, a sinner, and someone of ill repute. Someone who is probably not very respected uh, and liked uh, amongst her own, the people in her town, specifically the women. Now, I know these things because from the way John's telling the story is he's leaving out some of the details because his first century audience would know who this woman is. Women would usually travel together uh, for protection, for safety. They would usually get their water either in the morning or in the evening when it was a lot cooler. So the fact that this woman is coming out by herself in the hottest part of the day tells you a little something about who this woman is. No one likes her. No one wants to be around her. She's by herself. And as you find out in a little bit, there's reasons why she is left by herself. Um, Now, this is what we know of Jesus. He's a man, he's a Jew, and he's a rabbi. Now, culturally speaking, it would be suicide to his reputation to even encounter a woman, nonetheless a Samaritan woman, nonetheless a sinful woman. So for Jesus to even acknowledge this woman's existence would be to associate with her. And if anyone would see Jesus talking with this woman, they would be guilt by association. They would peg Jesus, oh, you're probably with her, aren't you? And I mean in a physical way. If he's even close to her, he's endangering himself of, by Jewish standards, becoming ceremonially unclean. But what I love about Jesus is he does not see in this woman a woman to avoid, a woman to ignore. He sees in this woman a woman that needs to be encountered uh, for the purposes of redemption. This is John chapter 4, verse 7 through 9. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. I'm not sure why the disciples didn't stop to give Jesus a drink, but they don't. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The woman is even caught off guard. Why are you talking to me? 
Don't you know how this game goes? You're a Jew, you're a man, I'm a woman, Samaritan. We stay away from each other. So she's really caught off guard as to why Jesus would be asking her for assistance. And I love how Jesus responds, not really by answering her question of why are you asking me for help, Jesus begins to really reveal to her um, who she's with. He says in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Seems like an odd response from Jesus because that's not answering her question. Read it one more time. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, the woman is obviously a little bit confused as to what Jesus says and begins to really question his ability of, well, you don't, you don't even have a bucket. Like, how could you possibly get any water from this well? Nonetheless, living water, which by the way, Jesus, what is living water? Um, Jesus goes on to respond. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Okay, just I read it one more time. Whoever drinks this water, looking at the water from the well, uh, will be thirsty again. Verse 14. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus makes pretty clear that living water does not come from this well. It comes from another source. Namely, it comes from Jesus, as he's the one saying, I'm the one who can give you this. Now, what Jesus is doing for this woman, really unbeknownst to her, is he's beginning to reveal to her what she needs to be redeemed from. Okay? He's leading her in this conversation to help her understand what it is she actually needs to be redeemed from. If you keep drinking this, you're going to be thirsty again. It won't satisfy you. If you receive what I have, you'll be filled. You'll be satisfied to the point of overflowing. And if you receive what I have to give, you are receiving something that is eternal. Now, I think if Jesus would have told us that and we were there at the well that day having this conversation, I think everyone in this room would say, well, give me that water. That sounds so much better than the water that's been coming from this well. Because this well is hundreds and hundreds of years old. So I like your water better. Where can I get it? This is what she says in uh, verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, obviously her response reveals that she doesn't really understand what Jesus is talking about. But I love that Jesus is uh, her confusion does not prevent Jesus from wanting to give this woman what she needs most, to be redeemed, to be set free. Now, what Jesus is about to do, she just asked Jesus for something. Give me the water. I want this water. I don't want to have to come back here anymore. If you've got water that would avoid me having to come back here by myself at noon every day, I want that water. So she's requesting something of Jesus. Now, what Jesus is about to do in his response to her 
is really revealing to her, but also to us, that before we can receive the gift that God has for us, there must be a recognition of need. Before I can receive something from God, there must be a recognition on my part that I need something from God, that something is missing. Another way to think about this is before someone can be converted, before there can be a conversion, there must be a conviction. Before I ever even know that I need a Savior, I need to know that I'm a sinner. Until I actually realize and come to grips with who I am, that I am a sinner, it's at that point when I start asking the question, well, where does salvation come from then? I don't start with salvation. I start with, I am a sinner. God's revealed that to me. I know that in light of his holiness, I'm a sinful person. And so this is what Jesus is doing with this woman. Before she can receive the gift that he wants to give her, she really needs to recognize that she has a need. And so this is what Jesus says in verse 16. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. Imagine being called out like that. Imagine being this woman. She can't say anything except to Jesus what she says, what you have just said is quite true. She can't argue with him because everything that he just revealed to her about her was spot on, was absolutely true. Now, Jesus is not bringing up the details of this woman's past or her current situation or current relationships to shame her or to guilt her to humiliate her, to embarrass her. Rather, he's bringing this up to help her see that what she needed more than anything was not another man offering empty love, but Jesus, the God-man standing right in front of her, offering his redemptive love. What she needed was not another relationship. What she needed was to receive from Jesus what he was offering. Now, question one was, what did this woman need to be redeemed or set free from? And I'll answer it simply by saying she needed to be redeemed or set free from trying to fill the void or emptiness she felt through multiple relationships with men. She believed that men could do something for her that only God could do. She believed that relationship with men would be able to fill her and meet that relational need, as it were, Fill that emptiness. Fill that void. Now, this is for men and women. It is a good desire to be loved. It is a good desire to want to be embraced, to be accepted, to be known. Where we take a good desire and turn it into a sinful thing is when we take that good desire and try to meet it uh, outside of, of God himself. The problem becomes when we try to meet a God desire with something other than God, okay? It's a good thing that this woman wanted to be loved, to be known, to be embraced, to be accepted, but it is a bad thing when we try to meet a God desire with something other than God. You may have heard this quote from Blaise Pascal. He said this, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus. So when we take 
that God-shaped hole, that God-shaped vacuum, and try to fill it with anything other than God, the Creator, revealed to us in Christ, it is just an empty thing that we just keep putting more and more and more uh, into this vacuum, into this hole. It won't, it won't satisfy. It won't fill. Now, she looked to be filled with multiple relationships or husbands. Now my question for us is, how about you? I really want you to think about this, but how many husbands do you have and what are their names? How many husbands do you have and what are their names? I realize that for a guy, you're like, whoa. I'm not actually talking, work with the metaphor here. Now, some of you, you're like, I don't have that husband called relationship. I'm not looking to fill that void, that emptiness through relationship. I get that. But I think what Jesus is is clearly teaching her and teaching us is that we all have husbands. And so I want you to, how many do you have? And what are the husband's names that you have? I've given you a couple that maybe you can remember these. The husband named possessions, stuff things, materialism. Maybe the husband is called position, status in your career, status from the degree that you might have. Maybe the husband is called pleasure, and it's an addiction that you have just to any hedonistic pleasure, whatever that pleasure might be. Maybe the husband is actually called your past. You're so married to your past, what you've done. You know, Bettina, I appreciate your honesty of sharing. For the longest time, she believed the lie that she was worthless because of things that had happened, things that were done. Some of you might have a husband called your past. And because you're still married to that husband, as it were, it's killing your future. It's killing you today. (coughs) Maybe you're like the woman at the well and your husband is just people. If I could just have this relationship... If I could just get myself married and have the husband, now I'm speaking real husband, or if I could just get married and have that wife, then I would be complete. Then I would be satisfied. Then I would be filled. What she and we needed most to be redeemed from is the lie that something created, whether it's position, possessions, position, pleasure, or people, will ever be able to do for us only what God can, namely fill us. There's a reason that Jesus is using this metaphor of living water, that it's overflowing and language of thirst, that we all have this hunger to be filled. It's just a question of what we do to fill, to meet that thirst. So I've asked this now a few times, but what's your husband's name? How many do you actually have? Sam Storms is... um, an author, pastor, teacher, like how he said this. He said, sin is the misguided and selfish determination to seek happiness in places where ultimately only emptiness and disillusionment, disillusionment are found. Sin is declining God's offer of filet mignon to fill our spiritual bellies with rancid ground beef. That God is offering us life. God is offering us living water. God is offering to fill us, satisfy to the point of overflowing. And we take that offer of what Jesus has and say, no, 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 I like my husband better. It doesn't fill, it doesn't satisfy, but I'm choosing this over 
the offer that God has given us uh, in Christ. Now, interesting, Jesus told the woman, go get your husband and come back. Like, did Jesus want to meet the guys and have a conversation with them about what they're doing with this woman? Or do you think what Jesus was doing in saying, go get your husband and bring him back? I wonder if there was a moment where Jesus is saying, I want you to compare your husband to the man who's standing in front of you. I want you to take your husband and then look at me. And I wonder what would happen if we bring our husbands, as it were, whatever your husband is, whatever it is you're trying to fill yourself with, possessions, position, any of that, and we bring it to Jesus. And does it actually compare? Does what your husband's name is and how many ever you have compare with Christ? Before we can receive the gift of redemption, we need to realize that we need redeeming. We need to realize that we're actually enslaved to trying to fill ourselves with something other than what God is offering to give us. Now, true or false statement, true or false, people don't want to talk about their husbands. Metaphor again, okay? True or false, people don't want to talk about their husbands, of what they're doing to try to fill that void. I would say absolutely true. Why? Because our husbands often represent something shameful, hurtful, embarrassing, where for other, the husband is just something that's very depressing, I'll never get over this, or I'll never get beyond this. I'll never be able to move forward. So what's the point of even talking uh, about it? Well, when a nerve gets pinched, rather than dealing with what is painful, having a conversation with this woman about her husband's, uh, she tries to change the subject. She seeks to, de- seeks to deflect or escape the conversation, as it were. And so what she does is, Jesus, let's not talk about my husband's anymore. Let's talk about religion. Let's talk about worship. And she tries to engage Jesus in a detour. And Jesus, being very gracious, uh, answers her questions that she has about religion and actually what, what worship is and what God is ultimately looking for. So after he answers her question about religion and worship, he brings her back to the point of relationship. It's so amazing how when our heart begins to get cut, We want to talk a little bit about a wall we can put up called religion. We want to do something other than deal with what God's trying to deal with at our heart level. Jesus says this to her in John chapter 4, verse 25 and 26. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then I can't imagine a more powerful verse in scripture than this one right here. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Can you imagine? I'm sorry, what did you just say? Did you just say that the one that we've been looking for, the one that we've been waiting for, the one that we know is eventually coming, did you just say that you're him? Did you just say that you're the Christ, the Messiah? Did you just say that you are the Redeemer? Can you imagine standing face to face with Jesus in that very moment and realize, my goodness, I'm standing in front of God in flesh. I'm I'm standing eye to eye with the Messiah, with the Christ. I'm standing eye to eye with the Redeemer. 
her testimony, what she shares after this is pretty revealing of what that moment was like. Verse 29. <coughs> Verse 29. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, she says, what did she mean when she says, he told me everything that I ever did? Clearly, Jesus did not have a five-week conversation with this woman highlighting everything that she'd ever done in her entire life. But what this woman is essentially saying when she says, he told me everything I ever did, the woman's saying to her friends, to her community, this man knows everything about me, and he still desired to have a relationship with me. This man knows everything about me. And he still spoke to me in a language of, I have a gift that I want you to receive. Well, the question two, question one was, what does she need to be redeemed of? She needed to be set free of trying to fill that void, that emptiness, that space created by God for him with other things, with husbands. Well, question two was, how did Jesus redeem or set her free? I'll just give you, it's a one word answer. It's called grace. How did Jesus redeem her? How did he provide redemption for her? And the word I'd want you to write down is just grace. When's the last time you think that woman ever had received a gift? When's the last time you think one of her husbands, one of the men that were using her, manipulating her for their own physical gain, maybe their own emotional gain, ever looked at her and said, I have a gift to give you? This was a woman who was used to being taken from. But Jesus stands before her, and throughout this entire story, I have a gift. I have a gift for you. And if it's a gift, that means it can't be earned, it can't be bought. It's a gift. And so because he's using this language of gift, it's posing the question now, you have a decision, you have a choice woman at the well, people sitting here today, you have a choice. Will you receive from God what he has to give you? Namely, living water. A relationship with Jesus that fills completely to the point of overflowing. How did he redeem? Well, by grace. It is absolutely all a gift. Redemption is a gift to be received from Jesus alone. Will I receive from Jesus what he's freely given me, or will I just continue to live with my husbands, hoping that they eventually will do for me what Jesus is offering? Now, how you answer this question is going to be pretty revealing of whether you'll receive Jesus, receive from Jesus what he has to give you, the living water, satisfaction, fulfillment, overflowing to, the, to etern eternity. Do you believe... Now, this is how you answer this question is really going to shape whether you receive from Jesus what he has to give you. Do you believe that what Jesus has for you will satisfy and fill you completely, so much so that your life will be overflowing? Do you believe that your husbands absolutely pale in comparison to Jesus, the Redeemer? Now, if you answer no to that question, that I don't really believe that Jesus will be sufficient. I don't really believe that Jesus would be enough. Well, 
you're not going to receive from Jesus what he's freely given you. But if you say yes, well, then the impact on you will be absolutely profound, like it was for Bettina. An absolutely profound moment within the last year in her life. The impact that what she has received from Jesus for her as a gift, not because she earned it, deserved it, worked for it, but because she received from Jesus what Jesus had to freely give her, it is absolutely transforming her life. And I love the one thing she said, joy. I've got joy. If you answer yes, that you believe that what Jesus has for you, then you will be able to receive from him what he wants to give you and not only have an impact on you, but begin to have an impact on those around you. Last few verses in this story. John chapter 4, verse 28 and 29, and I'll skip down to the end of uh, the chapter. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Now, my goodness, if you just had this moment with Jesus, would you honestly want to go back to the town that pretty much had rejected you, used you, and abused you? Isn't that so amazing that the first thing that she wants to do is go back to the very people that had shunned her, shut her out, rejected her. Verse 29, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Skip down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And last verse, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you've said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Isn't that phenomenal? The impact that redemption had on this woman was that she wanted everyone to know. Could this be the man? Could he be the Messiah, the Redeemer? She didn't really know much, okay? She didn't have any theological conversations of, Let's, you know, I I was talking to Jesus and he explained everything to me. She only knew one thing. He knew me and yet he loved me. He knew me and yet he accepted me. He knew me and yet he still wanted to have a relationship with me. When I say he knew me, I mean completely. All of my flaws, all of my failures, all of my doubting and rejecting, all of my sinfulness and selfishness, he knows all of it. And would you believe it? He still loved me. He didn't walk away scared like that guy, and then that guy, and then that guy, and then three more guys after that. He didn't reject. Now, many more became believers. They looked at her and said, it's not only because of your testimony now, it's because now we've spent time with Jesus, and we believe that he is, in fact, the Redeemer or the Savior To be redeemed means to be saved. Now, Bettina, I don't mean to keep picking on you, but I don't know how God's going to use your testimony this morning, but I'm fully confident there will be people in this room who are impacted because of what you shared this morning. And it's just one testimony had an impact on an entire town, had an impact on an entire village. Of the hundred plus people here, you will have an impact. And it's not just her words. It wasn't her words. 
It was because they met Jesus through her story. And I hope you heard Bettina say crystal clear, it was all Jesus. She didn't do anything. Jesus did it all. Now, I'm going to finish just by going back to where we started. I asked you the question, what in your life do you want to see the Redeemer redeem? I'm really thankful that Jesus didn't fall asleep on this woman and ignore her or avoid her when she came to the well. Because Jesus encountered her, she met her Redeemer, and she was redeemed and rescued from pursuing any more husbands, trying to find fulfillment, satisfaction, life to the full. And because of what Jesus did with her, she went back to her town and shared a testimony, could this be the Messiah? And an entire town is transformed now because of Jesus. I ask you the question, what is it that you want to see redeemed in your life? Redeemed from a life, you put a name on it. You name your husband. And I want to just leave you this morning with this, that whatever you've named, and no matter how many names you actually have, and no matter how big it is, how ugly it is, how twisted it is, how dark, how scary it is, there is nothing in your life that is beyond redemption. How many of us here have lived a better part of our lives thinking, man, God would want nothing to do with me because if he could really see my heart, it is really jacked up. So Bettina shared, years and years and years and years believing a lie that there's no way God could redeem this. There's no way that God would want, he knows me, therefore he would not want to love me and be in relationship with me. And as she said, and is this, that's a lie. He knows me, and yet he still invites me to receive from him the gift that he has, a gift of redemption. What in your life do you want to see the Redeemer redeem? I'm going to spend some time just praying as uh, invite the worship team to come back up. And for those of you uh, who are Christians and uh, you've made the decision to follow, but yet there's still something in your life that is called a husband. There's still something in your life, metaphorically speaking, okay? There's something in your life that you just keep, you're enslaved to. You keep running back, you're chained to, you're tied to. Whatever it is, would you please bring that to Jesus today? Jesus said, go back and get your husband. So today, if you're a Christian, would you bring your husband, as it were, to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you redeem me from this? Would you set me free from whatever the this for you is? And if you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus. Jesus came to redeem us from a life apart from God because of our sin. Jesus invited us to have Sinful people to have a relationship with a holy God. And he's the one who brings a sinful people into the presence of a holy God. 